I'm Phil Carradice, a writer, broadcaster, poet, historian. Welcome to the Three Streams podcast. You're going to be hearing over the next 10 minutes or so uh, from about four of the contributors who are appearing at this year's festival. Uh, There may well be others who come in and give their spiel as well. But we're going to start with Kath Giblin. Kath was one of the founders of the festival. It was her idea, or one of her ideas, same as the Clantwit Major writers. And she's a significant factor in in the festival and in the whole literary scene here in Clantwit. I've come now to Bardic Vintage Books in Church Street, and I'm talking to Kath Giblin, who's the owner of the shop, and she's going to tell us a little bit about the origins of this festival. Kath, your idea a long time ago, yeah? Yes. Um, yeah, and thanks very much, Phil, for the opportunity to talk about my passion, which is the bookshop and books in general. And welcome very much, welcome to you, to my beautiful shop. It is a beautiful shop, it I have to admit. It's shop. gorgeous. There's something for everybody, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Where did the journey begin? I suppose the journey began the first time I could, um, I could hold a book. <laughs> and start to make sense of these black squiggles on the page that surrounded these glorious pictures and realise that it was a gateway into another world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, we all need that, particularly in childhood. And yeah, I mean, it's just always been my overriding passion in moments of sadness and moments of happiness. There's always a book to talk to me and make me feel better and make me feel that somebody else has experienced what I'm experiencing. I was... um, a lover of English, uh, did a degree in English and um, so I went back to university and did a master's degree focusing primarily primarily on 17th century literature and then pretended to write a PhD for a few years <laughs> and and one of the things that happens when you study uh, at postgraduate level is they know that you're absolutely poor as church mice and very few senior academics want to actually teach so they get you to do their dirty work for them <laughs> so I first time in my life I taught and I absolutely loved it I just it, it opened I mean you know Phil because you were a teacher it there's there's a char- person there's a character that you are when you're teaching that is like a toy in a box when you're in front of a class it's like somebody's wound you up and then you you put away and you never come out again until you're in front of a class. It's, it is something I think that people are born to do. That's, um, so that's been a, a joy for the best part of the last two decades. Um, and then, like all good things, they have to come to an end and come to the end of my teaching career. And it just so happened that um, I was calling into this beautiful vintage shop in Landwood Major Square which is really just the most incredible location you could imagine. It's just up from St Elted's Church. You're looking out onto two beautifully, um, well, they're not restored, they, they never needed to be, to be restored. They're just in great condition. Medieval public houses, wonderful town hall. I mean, people coming to these Three Streams Festival will see these buildings because most of the activities take place on the square. Um, just absolutely beautiful. And, and the person who had the shop was was giving the lease up and uh, I just thought it was serendipity really you know almost an act of God that that I was seeking for something that was going to continue my passion for literature and for books but outside of the classroom one of the things I really wanted to do was to start a writing circle because I wanted to try and write more 
and um, so put an advert out and uh, some people came along who have since become wonderful friends, including somebody whose whose books I'd been teaching in a secondary school, Mr. Phil Carradice, <laughs> and I nearly fell off my chair. But it was it's over the last four years we've really become, as well as being a a, a group of people who have done some really serious writing, we've become a really wonderful family. Yeah, but I remember from that very first uh, meeting up, you know, uh, yeah. that when we used to get together and talk about books, you had an idea then about a festival. Because I remember yeah. saying to you, take care. <laughs> this is going to take oh, over yeah. your life. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I, no, I, I think I'm one of these people that always feels that um, I'm a bit of a dreamer, and I probably am. But I, I'm also somebody who really firmly and utterly, utterly believes that dreams can come true. But you have to make them come true. I don't really understand people who say, I want to do something and really want to do it and don't try. Because anything I've ever wanted to do, I've always tried to do. And and I can remember when I first came to Landwit and um, talking to the lovely John Woods, who's um, at the time was manager of Mickleby's Bookshop, which is a great bookshop, um, about the fact that um, I think that Landwit Major should have a festival. And John talked to me about the Cowbridge Festival that they used to supply the books for. And I remember another time being sat home to a friend of mine, Iona, and saying, we should have a festival and, and, and you should help, you should help me organise it. But, but what it actually took to make it happen was a conversation with the writing circle because we had that conversation. I, I mean, I, it might have been me who said it first, I don't know, but certainly whoever said it, then everybody joined in and said, yeah, OK. Let's make it happen. And and so it grew from there. We had that wonderful one-day festival, didn't we? Yeah. And it was fantastic. I mean, I I still, however much our festival is just going from strength to strength and, you know, I think is really being put on the local map and wider map as well. That was Kath Giblin, who now runs Bardic Books in Clandrid Major and uh, is an important part of the festival. We're going to look now and talk to Canon Edwin Council, who's the man in charge of the church, Sinichtitz, and a very, very significant figure. Edwin, tell me, please, if you don't mind, uh, a little bit about the church, where we are now at the moment, and, uh, and its history. Uh, we're in the modern bit of the church at the moment. This bit is, what, barely a thousand years old. Uh, so uh, this is the, we're in the main church, what we call the, the East Church. We use it as our, our main gathering point for worship. Um, and this dates back to the, to the 12th century. Uh, it's been altered and tweaked a bit in between every time there was a little bit of money. Uh, we got some, um, uh, some, some good patronage in around about the 14th century from Tewkesbury Abbey. And uh, they were... Why Tewkesbury? What's the connection with Tewkesbury? I'm, I'm not absolutely sure how... That, I think they, they probably took, on, took churches under their wing, whether they had a local connection down here. But they became the patrons of it, whether that was a formal you know, taking on of that or whether it was just a connection there. But, um, but they brought some, um, <laughs> some cash, which obviously helps in these situations, and, and I think restored the place, built the tower, which joined the original, what we call the West Church, where we, we do a lot of our music and art events, uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to this part of the church. And then this second church was built alongside it, which was not a monastery. That sounds, everybody has this, this idea of, of people with a you know, cowl up over their heads. It wasn't that at all. A chapter of priests just prayed here 24-7. Um, so it became a sort of a centre of spirituality. And I think that then harks back to uh, the Celtic route, and then we're back to, to Italy's, 
and his monastic college in the early years of the 6th century, the early 500s. Because it was a college. I mean, can we, can we use that word, college? I, I think that's the best word we've got to describe it. Uh, it was a place of learning. I mean, the first, um, the oldest place of formal education in the UK, which is a remarkable thing to, to you know, to, to, to actually have that heritage today. Uh, 15 centuries of tradition. And that's quite nice then, when you think about the, the festival, the Three Streams Festival. Not, we're not going back <laughs> as it was, but there's still that connection, isn't it, with, with the church and, and the arts? And... Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, if, if, you take, if you take literature, art and music, there's three things that, that, that form um, the heritage of the church because they speak into the human condition. I look around this church and you see the wall paintings and you see the, the, the architecture, you know, the art here. I mean, we're, we're, we're coming into this astonishing place for a thousand years of history, visible in front of us. Um, but also then, you know, you break open scripture and you find these, these, these insights from the, you know, that, 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 that opening up of, of what faith meant to people through, through the generations. For, for me, this place grows when everybody brings something of themselves and leaves a little bit of that behind. That was Edwin Council. Moving on, into have a, have a touch up with uh, a very different sort of uh, participant. This is Robin Jenkins, who's going to be talking about lifeboats. Uh, I'm Robin Jenkins. I'm the CEO of the charity Atlantic Pacific. And what what exactly is that? So Atlantic Pacific uh, is an organization that looks to increase the amount of people available to work in search and rescue in places that currently have a very small resource or a lack of resource completely. And has this come out of Atlantic College for the work that was... It has, yeah. So I was a student there all the way back in the early 90s uh, and Atlantic College is famous for its long-standing relationship with the ocean. Uh, with sailing, but then later with the development of uh, a certain type of lifeboat, which is called the rigid hull inflatable boat, which they invented there in the 60s. Then they patented the design. They sold the design to the RNLI for a pound and is now the most widely used uh, sea rescue platform in the world. What spawned from that was that there was a RNLI lifeboat station in the college. Um, and so the RNLI closed the lifeboat station there back in 2013. Uh, a load of us who were still connected to that station in one way or another. I was still connected to the RNLI. I was crew with Tower Lifeboat in London for many years. We couldn't see it go. We knew that this was a, an integral and important part of Atlantic College's legacy and history. And we started to think about ideas about what we could replace that seafront magic in a way. Yeah, yeah. So we, we were thinking about it, and, and at the time I was a university lecturer in London at Chelsea College of Art and Design, and I was teaching design, I'm an architect by training, huh. and I was invited to be a part of a project that was looking at ways of helping the communities of northeast Japan that got affected by the tsunami of 2011. So I was out there as a part of a research group to look at ways that the sort of creative world could assist in the redevelopment of that region. Yeah. And while I was there, I heard multiple stories about what happened on, on March 11th in 2011, and most of them were terrifying. There was a woman that we met who was the landlord uh, or landlady of a hotel right on the, on the beach. 
in a really beautiful location just outside the city of Kamaishi, which was the first city to get hit by the tsunami. Everything got destroyed in this little village, except for her hotel, which she then turned into an evacuation center and everyone just kind of moved into this hotel. While I was there, I was thinking of ideas of what could we do here to help this community. Um, and I ended up having a conversation with her where she started telling me the stories of the actual disaster and what happened on the day. When the waves passed and retreated back to the ocean, it had devastated the land. It was March, so it's very cold in northern Japan in the beginning of March. There was snow, it was below zero, it was dark, of course, all the electricity had gone. Uh, and a group of them went looking for other survivors and they walked along the beaches yelling out uh, to try and attract attention. And indeed they did attract attention of people that were stuck on bits of debris floating in the sea. Uh, and there was nothing that he could do for them because they had no means to rescue them. And I asked the question, where's your lifeboat? Her response was, what's that? Uh, and then I thought it was an interpretation thing or misunderstanding, so asked more questions. She said, no, explained to her that in the UK we have 240 lifeboat stations manned by a voluntary organization etc etc it's 200 years old it's one of the biggest charities in the uk no we don't have anything like this i showed them the website i talked to other members in the community no we don't have anything like this in japan japan an island nation uh very similar to the uk in many ways people have you know even though there's a culturally there are many differences but like sort of attitudes and personalities are very similar um, and anyway, I was, there, I was there for five weeks, uh, getting to know people, hearing these stories, and it, it occurred to me, you know, what am I going to be able to offer these people, you know? Uh, a Westerner coming from the other side of the world, no experience of what they've gone through. You know, it just started to seem a bit ridiculous and patronizing. Um, but while I was on the flight on the way back to the UK, it was like a, an alignment of, of stars. They didn't have a lifeboat station. We were looking for a project that was associated with lifeboats in Atlantic College. And it was just sort of one of those light bulb moments. So I went to the college and I gave a lecture about my experience in Japan. And at the end of it, I said, I've got an idea. What I'd like to do is design and develop a particular type of boat to start a lifeboat service in Japan. And I asked the students who's interested and every hand in the room went up. And then two weeks later, we started developing and building a boat and I went out and I knew that I had to have a proposal and I met with members of the community members from the municipal government from the mayor's office etc etc sitting around a table and I said I've uh, this is what I've decided I think I would like to propose for 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 the community here it's a, a lifeboat station a volunteer run lifeboat station I know you don't have this in Japan what a great thing to start um, gave the community agency as opposed to being the receivers of charity all the time that they were potentially people who were going to be rescuers uh, it suddenly occurred to me that we would have to send this four and a half meter boat that we were building in Atlantic College we'd have to send that to Japan and we'd probably have to send it in a 20-foot shipping container and it can suddenly sort of like well why 20-foot let's make it a 40-foot shipping container and we can fit the lifeboat station in there as well so I literally took the vomit bag out of the thing. I had a pen in my pocket and I started to sketch up ideas for it. I went from Heathrow to Chelsea College of Art before going home. I went into my boss, Chris Wainwright, who was the head of Chelsea Campbell and Wimbledon. I said, Chris, I've done something a bit 
like reckless here and he put his head in his hands oh what have you gone listen uh, uh, don't worry I've got a plan but I promised the people of Kamaishi that I'd build them a lifeboat station and he was like Jesus <laughs> how are you going to get out of this one I said I've got a plan and I produced this sick bag in front of him and I said look I'll design this uh, I'll, I'll do this for them and he said yeah that, that, that sounds great okay um, what do you need? And I said, well, I, I need the university to buy me a 40-foot shipping container. And so he sort of sighed and said, okay, go and talk to my secretary, sort it out. And it was just a really lovely thing where like a community of my colleagues sort of rallied round and, and got stuck in. And we built this thing in two weeks. The boat was finished in the college. It was delivered up to London. Uh, we stuck it in the container, we put it on the back of a ship, and I met it in Tokyo six weeks later. Hello, Editor Alfie here. Phil actually forgot to introduce a very important contributor to this year's festival, Kevin Sinnott. Having a sit-down chat in his home studio with Tony Curtis, we joined them discussing the cover of Tony's book, which features Kevin's painting, Running Away with a Hairdresser. You see, I was seen two halves. It's perfect for a book jacket. That's the only reason we chose it, I mean. I know, it's, it's like a... Opus a, painting, it makes it pretty... It's that's like good a, book jackets, this bloke, you know. Well, you should put that away. <laughs> We're not promoting you, you This is... Um, and, you know, they did a thousand copies, and you can't get... You've got to go online now. Because they used a publisher, it was before digital, and they lost all the plates. So they, could, they wanted to reprint it, because it sold quite well, actually. Yes, good. Couldn't do it. For me, this is a remarkable visit, because uh, it's 20 six years since we sat here and, and, and we did an interview for Welsh Painters Talking, which I was very happy to <laughs> feature your, your most famous painting on the cover of. Um, what's what's happened in that time? Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, Wales has been good to me, and uh, the, the loyalty you have from that kind of... Um, in return, I suppose, for my loyalty, I've got to be honest. Yeah, because you're back where you started, aren't you? Bridge End, back basically in the Bridge End area. And Amazing. After a long period in, in England and London, yeah. I mean, half of my life, adult life, up there, and now the time goes by so fast. Yeah. That, that book you, you just said... A quarter of a century ago or more, quarter yeah. Quarter of a century, yeah. yeah. But you, well, you're... When you were in London, was there a sense in which you were looking for a subject matter? And then when you came back to Wales, that was your subject matter. I, I remember mm -hmm. going to a, a Flowers East show some years ago. One of the most astonishing shows that I've ever been to, where th those big valleys paintings were they there. Were, they were and it was, <coughs> I was, <coughs> they it was were breathtaking. Up, they were, were shipped up from, where, from Wales, yes. Um, up to London. But I painted them since I'd got back to Wales. Yeah. Yes. That's true. Uh, yeah, I, m I mustn't uh, forget that sometimes because sometimes I think my art, my painting subject matter is driven by art, you know, and... Uh, <coughs> but it's... it's uh, when I got back to Wales, it just started to be driven more and more by life. Because we're in the art world, we forget most art galleries, commercial galleries particularly, are intimidating. You feel like you have to... There are some in the West End where you have to ring the bell to be let in. Well, the, the, you also get the, in um, 
Burlington Arcade. It's not an art gallery, I know, but it's a bit like an art gallery. Well, they actually look at your shoes when you come in. <laughs> they look at the, 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 the handmade shoes. No, not handmade. But, but the, you know, I, uh, I, I bought a painting in Chelsea once on the same basis that I pressed the button, and they were very reluctant to let me in. And I had to show immediately that I knew what I was looking at, you know. And I did, I did buy a, a, quite a significant painting eventually, but there was an edge to it. And they also said, I said, well, I'd like this. They said, I, I'll, he said, oh, we can't accept your check, sir. It'll have to be a bank transfer. We don't know who you are. So I had to stay over in London overnight to... I didn't know what bank transfers were. This is like 25 years ago. Oh, good God, yeah. You know, they, they, so it was almost like, you know, the country club. You had to be introduced by someone. We, we, we need to get over that, don't we? Well, Kevin, it's been over a quarter of a century since we formally did an interview. I can't, I can't wait uh, for Three Streams Festival. We're going we're gonna to do it again in front of an audience. And it'll be so much different this time. And because you've moved into a different, we both moved into a different phase of our lives. And, and your paintings now are still as vibrant, but are rooted in Wales and exploring history and tradition in Wales in a way that you hadn't before. So yeah. um, the audience went for a treat at uh, St. Church in, in Landrick Major. Well, I hope we will live up to it. <laughs> This is Sarah Pearson, who is a poet and one of the organisers of the festival, and she is the person who really runs the, uh, the poetic side of this festival, but also runs the Sunday evening poems and pints that's, that's that we have now here in the town. You and the festival, what is it that you actually do? So my main love is poetry. Right. And um, so I've been trying to get together some great poets in order that um, poetry can be a big feature of the festival. I think it's important that it is. I mean, poetry is essential, isn't it, to humankind? To all things. All things. I think about it whenever there's a big occasion. People always say a poem or a quote from a poem, and uh, I think it's that makes it kind of magical and a bit universal. All poetry is universal, even if it affects one person mm. in, it, in the world. It, that, then it's, it reaches out to touch somebody, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you never know. You never know how somebody else will take it, I suppose. If, whether it will resonate with them or, or the opposite or make them see the world in a different way. I yeah. don't know. You can only put it out there. I mean, at the end of the day, do you ever worry about that people might interpret what you've written in a different way from how you intended it? I don't know. I hadn't worried until now. Oh, no, sorry, I, I shouldn't have brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just I, for my own poetry. Um, it doesn't matter to me if people interpret it in a different way. Mm. I know what I intended, and that's the important thing. Then if others interpret it in a different way, yeah. fine, you know. I remember once somebody once uh, dis uh, dissected a poem of mine in one of these writer's own magazines or whatever. Oh, yeah. And they told me that I was saying, trying to say this and trying to say that and trying to do this. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> I think it's a, weird, it's a weird thing because, obviously, like... When you're teaching and things, you, you'd spend a lot of time analysing other people's poems and... and things like that and you know sometimes they're like oh do you think they really meant that they really choose that word i said believe me writers choose every word on purpose the best words in the best order yeah, yeah. i use that one as well <laughs> <laughs> how about uh, uh i mean i i'm a great believer in poetry being read aloud would you agree with that yeah i think for lots of reasons just uh firstly to share it and um, also it's useful for other people to hear it and give you criticism and feedback on it 
kids and that's really useful and it's nice when it brings people together whether it's not it's going to listen to a poet or a few poets read that's really lovely but it's lovely in person we have a writing group and our poetry night that's really like nice to speak to people and see people but then we saw in covid you know these different communities popped up and there's various international writing groups and things so yeah no it's not based on setting it's based on kind of you know people don't like missing it people don't like missing writing group yeah and uh i don't know about poetry and pints i don't like missing it because it's like you're touching base with people but you're also kind of sharing your creativity or, or doing a workshop or whatever it is and i think that really matters to people Right, thank you very much. That was just a taster of some of the people who are going to be appearing at the festival. The best thing I can suggest now is that you come along on the weekend of the 9th to the 11th of June and enjoy it for yourself. Certainly buy yourself a programme. It's a brochure, really, not a programme. A glossy. And it really is a wonderful thing to keep as a memorial, as a memento of what's going to be a superb weekend. The people who have organised it have really, really put a lot of effort into it. And we want to thank, thank them for... Uh, probably one of the best weekends in Landwick Major. Come along, have a look for yourself, taste it, enjoy it. See you there. This has been a Waffle Original Audio Production for Three Streams Festival in Landwick Major. Audio Production by Alfie Arnold for Waffle. Original Musical Score by Kind Permission of Peter Cronin. Copyright 2023. These Three Streams and Waffle Audio. <laughs>